This episode of the Vine Pair Podcast is sponsored by the Prisoner Wine Company. Give a gift that doesn't require wrapping with premium gift sets from the Prisoner Wine Company. These are online exclusives that can help elevate a personal collection. Plus, ground shipping is included on all gift sets. Head to theprisonerwinecompany.com to shop now and order by December 14th to receive in time for the holidays. From Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. I like it. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm in a good mood. You know? Again, we Happy don't have to rehash, Monday, everybody. But it's Monday. Yeah. I just feel like, let's go. You yeah, know? let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Adam, what have you been drinking? No, I'm not first. I'm always Come last. On. Zach. Adam gets the hammer. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I had the opportunity uh, recently to go to dinner with some uh, friends of mine from kind of various parts, mostly on the production side of the wine industry here in Washington. And I thought you were going to say chance. production side of like the music industry. Sometimes. No, 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 that's no, no. cool. But just wine not, industry. No, just the yeah, just the wine industry. Just Notoriously uncool. Wine. Please keep listening to our podcast. Anyhow. <laughs> nice. <laughs> continue sorry anyhow so there were a lot of great bottles everyone brought i told everyone to only bring one bottle of course some people including me brought more than one but uh a lot of great bottles i think a couple of the highlights for me um a really beautiful bottle of wine from valtellina from our pepe uh nebbiolo uh or uh Chevanesca, as it's known there uh from a, one of their single vineyards that was a great wine uh, but i think that stand out to me in part because the wine was really good in part because just such a great story was a 1994 syrah from columbia uh and that was the, uh from the red willow vineyard here in washington that was the first place that syrah was planted here in the state and longtime listeners of the pod will know i'm a, a pretty big advocate for syrah in washington and so uh this wasn't like the first vintage it was made it was uh first planted in 83 good year 83 right adam mm-hmm. yeah uh, great year but, uh, oh, best year <laughs> I, I won't argue and uh, <laughs> and then uh, but this is one of the earlier vintages for them and uh i haven't had a chance to try very many of those so that was really pretty special for me cool to have and, and just you know a great opportunity for uh me to get out of the house not be with the kids not even be with the wife, just uh, hang out with some with some friends, drink some wine. And uh, yeah, it's great. How about you, Joanna? Awesome. What you been drinking? I've had a lot of great stuff here at the office recently. Um, last week, Philippe Gigal came in and we were lucky enough to taste a bunch of his wines. Um, so had a lot of delicious uh, Cote Rhone and Cote Roti. Um, I, think my, I think we had like 15 wines it was a lot, but um, those are all wonderful. And I think my favorite was the, um, sorry, I'm just looking at the picture here, um, <laughs> the Cote Roti uh, La Moulin, which was really delicious. And so a lot of great Syrah for me too. And then we also did our top 50 spirits tasting, like culling down our big list. And we had a lot of great stuff. I think a standout for me was an aged rum. I won't say that. Which? Oh, yeah. Don't want to spoil. <laughs> don't want to spoil it. Yeah. Fair enough. For me, I had an amazing bottle of Scopatino from mm. that Hannah brought me, actually. Oh, nice. Uh, that I, was it chilled? Uh, it was chilled. Oh, of course wow. it was chilled. Uh, that I had on <sighs> Friday. That I had uh, when we had some friends over and I made uh, some spicy rigatoni. It was fine. I'm over it. It was a vodka sauce. Mm-hmm. I made a vodka sauce. I don't know if I like vodka sauce, to be honest. Really? It's. I mean, I I, I make it 
every once in a while, and it was this friend's like favorite dish that I've made when they've been over, so I made it again. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't know. I just I don't know if it's for me. You know what but, I'm saying? And I think that's wrong. You like vodka sauce? Yeah. Who doesn't like vodka sauce? It's delicious. Yeah, I guess it. I, I like it on pizza. I think maybe more than I like it oh. on pasta. I think also spicy vodka sauce existed long before the oh, yeah. Carbone Empire. This was not I a Carbone. Re- this was not a Carbone recipe. So f you, Carbone. Uh, so I had that, and then Josh came over on Saturday to hang out with Esty, and we and you know we split some champagne with her. Uh, no, not really. She <laughs> hung out, but we watched the football game <laughs> and. Uh, and wa- and had some some nice champagnes, uh, including one from our best of champagne list, the Lanson or a biodynamic champagne, organic biodynamic champagne that was really great. And yeah, otherwise champagne and football, everybody. You know, it can be done. Mm-hmm. And we had it with wings, which is a great pairing, actually. Yeah, definitely. wings and champagne is a dope ass pairing. Basically, anything you would eat with football and drink beer, you can drink champagne. Yeah, there champagne board. I've just done. B Dubs, why don't you get on <laughs> this? Why you. can't I get champagne at Buffalo Wild Wings? I want to yeah. know. I actually have to say, like, as the sponsor, I- I'm very not surprised. I understand why they've done it, but like, I I truly believe that Gallo's sponsorship of the NFL should lean even more heavily into Lamarca mm. than it does into Barefoot. I just think again, Prosecco, all the foods that you eat, it's like light. There's bubbles. It goes with. I mean, you eat so much fried food when you watch sports. Yeah, I mean, all this shit, burgers. It goes well. All that you know. Just I just feel like Lamarca NFL strong partnership. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I don't know who the. You know what? Just just hire me. You can send the checks uh, directly to Adam. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give you my address. Just hit up, hit me up in the DMs. Anyways, <laughs> so speaking of beer, <laughs> speaking of beer, mm-hmm. uh. This is true. This isn't true. There have been sources that say this. Well, anyways, Axios broke a story last week uh, that Diageo is looking to offload all of its beers, all the beers in its portfolio besides Guinness. And while a Diageo spokesman then went to, the, I think, the drinks business and sort of refuted this claim saying, well, no, 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 we're not. Now there's other reports saying like they actually have been quietly shopping the beers Uh Harp being one of them that they also uh, sell. And I just thought it was interesting as a kickoff to this conversation about beer in general and how basically it does feel like to me that first first of all, I'm not surprised, right? Diageo already um, divested from its wine portfolio, sold all of that off, had a lot of high-end wines, lots of Bordeaux actually, um, really focusing mostly on spirits. I'm also not surprised that they would not sell Guinness. Uh, actually, the formation of Diageo was initially with sort of the merger of Guinness and Johnny Walker. It's sort of the, uh, you know, the founding of that company, the, these two very iconic, you know, brands. I won't say British because it's not British. <laughs> but Guinness also is just like this behemoth brand. To to be very honest, and we've, I, I, we've said this multiple times, it is the most popular brand by far when it comes to beer with our readership. If we write about Guinness, the the amount of page views we do is just, astronomical compared to writing about any other beer. I believe um, Joanna and I called it the perfect beer, did we not? Oh yeah. Yeah, consumers love it. It it has such a it's it's just it's such a beautiful brand. Uh the aver- like it's historic advertising is so great. The toucan, you know, uh Guinness is this great product. So I'm not surprised, but I think one of the things this shows as well is that especially if you're a large company, like owning smaller brand- beer brands f- for a large alcohol company 
just doesn't make sense anymore. Like, I feel like these, like, Harp is a great brand, but I don't think I've had a Harp since high school. Uh, I really don't <laughs> think that I have. Yeah, my dad had, I stole it out of the fridge. What up? I, I don't think I've had a Harp in a very long time. And I think that these are these kind of beers that they're important to a very small group of people mm. who have an attachment to these beers. Mm. But to try to represent this kind of a beer on a international or even national level is extremely difficult at this point with the amount of competition that you have from local producers, et cetera, for taps, for shelf space, for fridge space, et cetera, that I'm not surprised that Diageo would want to walk away. Whereas Guinness, it is literally, I don't think there's any other beer that anyone thinks of as being Irish besides Guinness, right? It is Ireland. There's no other stout. There's no other stout. And I don't think there's any other stout. It defines the category in the same way that Jameson defines Irish whiskey. Yeah. It is the category of stout to most people. Yeah. And so they can walk in everywhere and get a tap line. I mean, there's probably Guinness at every draft at every bar on, on, on draft at every bar around our office. Yeah. That is their that is their stout draft. Mm-hmm. So of course they would keep that, but get rid of everything else. In the same way, I kind of feel like at this point in time, Modelo is becoming that for Mexican lager. Hmm. Uh, you know, Corona really is kind of falling away in, in favor of Modelo. And I think, again, if you're going to have a Mexican lager on a draft, it's going to be Modelo across the country. Yeah. But otherwise, owning smaller brands seems to not be a great idea in beer anymore. But I think this is in particular, like, like Guinness is a global brand. And I think that's a huge part of this conversation because I think that, yeah, like you said, it's either you're either local or you're global. Yeah. And I don't and you're global at this point. I I think I don't know. I'd be hard pressed to name another beer brand that could go could go global at this point. Right. Maybe. I don't know. Like Voodoo Ranger. Maybe. I don't uh, think Sierra Nevada. I don't think any of them could. Like, I know those are popular in, like, Asian markets. Yeah, they are. But still. But still, I think they're, yeah, these are hard brands. Yeah. Like, and again, these aren't being owned by huge multinational alcohol companies. Right. Right. Voodoo Ranger, you know, I mean, they, not in the same way of a Diageo, a Campari, a Gallo, a Constellation, these huge, huge companies. I just, and again, I think that so many people have decided to drink local in so many markets that now most consumers would rather drink the local made Pilsner than like a mass market Pilsner that is, they're told is good in Germany, but they're not that familiar with, right? They're like, oh, but like, I know other half or I know Six Point. They're my local brewery and they make a, a decent enough Pilsner for me. Mm-hmm. So I want to add two points here. One is that to lend credence to this reporting, if you go to Diageo's website and click on looking for at their brand portfolio and click on beer, the only thing listed is Guinness. Yeah. yeah. So, you <laughs> know, like, that's been that way for a really long time. Yeah, <laughs> I know. But like the point is like they, they've already sort of decided that like if you're interested in Diageo's beer offerings, you only care about Guinness, regardless yeah. of whether they technically own anything else or not. I also think that to this point that we've been making – it is really true that I think we've we've seen this real stratification of beer from into these sort of two camps. I would add there's probably regional beers, you know, and that's not true just in the U.S. And I think actually a lot of this move is not even just about the American market, but it's really about the European market in a lot of ways because 
the European and, and other parts of the country or the parts of the world too, where, you know, sort of craft beer or its analog has really taken off of late. Because I think that where there might've been possibility space to create a global IPA brand 15 or 20 or 30 years ago before the style had sort of proliferated all over. Now, the same thing that holds true in New York, Seattle, uh, you know, Oklahoma City holds true in a lot of European cities, a lot of global cities and, and uh, regions where there are breweries making all kinds of beers. You know, the, the beer community is globally connected. People work with, uh, you know, they work with recipes from all over the place. You know, hops and stuff travel around the world as well as, well as the other ingredients. And there's just not the same compelling argument for all but a few rec- incredibly recognizable you know, what we would call here imports, right? And those are basically the ones we named, Guinness, Modelo, maybe Corona still, maybe a couple of others, you know, things like, I don't know about something like Stella Artois. Does like Stella Artois still have a market? Probably not the one it used to have, for sure. Heineken, Amstel, et cetera. But, yeah. but even there, I think you're seeing a, a decrease as I think the beer drinking public in general becomes more enamored with smaller production, local craft breweries, and that's great The you, you have kind of this return to this pre-globalization world in beer where it used to be, I mean, the part of the reason why there are all these breweries in, in Europe historically that we now know of, and some of which have been imports is because you used to get the beer from the local brewery. It's not like th- that was just how it worked. You didn't get beer yeah, yeah, yeah. in, in Bavaria. You got beer from Bayou. And if you were in the Netherlands, you got beer from Bayou and so on and so on. And like, it wasn't a global market. And in a way, even though the market is still incredibly globally connected, people want to get beer and beer is, you know, the most perishable of the kind of big alcohol categories. Mm -hmm. It's the hardest to ship. It makes sense that people want to get it locally when they can, with these very few exceptions. Yeah. It also just seems like, I don't know, I, I, you know, obviously work with Dave on his hop take column and just this idea that like, mm, getting into the beer business is just like not really great like the margins aren't there there's and and for a brand like Diageo it it, it just like makes sense for them to be offloading well yeah and this is like sort of my my the conversation that I've we've had a bunch internally is like everyone like wine always complains about the margins and why they can't spend yeah but I feel like that's the the same does exist in beer unless you are a massive brand right, right? if you are Coors Light, Bud Light, Miller Light, whatever you're these huge brands. Well, your Molson Coors or ABI. Exactly. Right? Then you have these huge. You, then actually, you can you can achieve economies of scale, and you can start to produce really cheaply, and then you can get the margin larger. But if not, especially when you're these brands, I think especially that are tied to specific locales. So, for example, the 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 beers that they're talking about getting rid of is like Harp, Smithwick, etc. They're all brewed in Ireland. And then there's Tusker. From Tusker Kenya. from Kenya, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but they also they got rid of Red Stripe a long time ago. Yes, yes, yes. Those beers have to be brewed in these locales for them to be what they are, right? right? And so you're incurring all these shipping costs to get them to these places. So at the, at the end of the day, once you add in all the costs of the glass, the you know the raw materials, the water, the shipment, you know the shipment to the country, then on the truck to the different market, then out in the market, like the marketing budget that you have is so slim yeah. that of course people kind of forget about these beers whereas like you know Diageo's I mean ever I mean Diageo started brewing a lot of Guinness in the US. Yeah. Like it's well known. Yeah. And people don't care. That's the thing that carries some of these global brands forward is that uh, it's not just Diageo. Look at Sapporo with what it's they're Sapporo, doing yeah. in you know in San Francisco. Like yeah. they're or I'm sorry in San Diego rather. Uh they tried to do it in San Francisco. Did not work. Great. Just re- 
ruined a great brewery instead. But yeah, yeah. but but the point is that I think you know f- exactly what you're describing. The sort of logistical challenges you cannot brew beer doesn't make sense to brew in one location and ship around the world anymore. In very unless you are producing a higher value, higher margin beer than the sort of things we're talking about. And I don't really know what those are. Maybe like some of the Belgian stuff and things the, like that. I, mean, where I, I think basically only the Belgian stuff. Yeah. And even that is, you know, a, a, a small, much, 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 much smaller market with a way different audience than yeah. Guinness, Sapporo, Bud Light, etc. And I think that it's, it, you're right that there's just, what I wonder is like, are these brands like Harp, like Smittix, et cetera, going to just go away? Because like, or, or essentially be just Irish brands because it's hard for me to think of of the kind of, you know, they want to, Diageo wants to sell these, but who wants to buy them? Right. Where is the, where is the thing where you say, I have a, a viable business plan for these brands that are just like, is someone out there clam? Is there a big market for Irish lager that like, I don't know. I just don't think so. I think as we, as you said before, Adam, people or you know, people want the beer that's made by them and they or near them. And they're not, like they're just we're just in a different world than we were 20 or 30 years ago when buying these brands and taking them around the world made more sense. I do wonder if the reality is that this that these just get sold back to local operators, hmm. right? Like you know you know an investment company in Ireland that would love to own these brands and knows that you know they will do they will have a very great business if they sell these brands to Ireland and then to you know the countries of Great Britain, right? So, uh, you know, looking at Scotland, you know, England, Wales, like it, it just feeling like that makes the most sense for them, um, and maybe to a few of the big expat communities, right? So, if there's a large, so maybe to Boston, right? They they do a large shipment of these beers to Boston because there's a large Irish population that still feels very connected to these beers and its heritage, etc. But that yeah, these are not national. These are not global brands anymore, and so a global company shouldn't be owning a brand that can't be a global brand. Right. Yeah. The only sort of difference here is like if the brand can be big enough to be a quote-unquote global brand in one country. So there's a lot of brands, for example, that Diageo owns that aren't that big in the rest of the world that are massive in the U.S., the main one being Crown. Crown is actually, I mean, Crown is a huge brand for them in the U.S., but Crown's not that big anywhere else. Canada. Well, Canada. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, like, that's it, right? And that's fine because it's so big here that it can basically be seen as a global brand for them. Uh, There's other examples. I know Beam has that as well, but that's it. But also, like, just from a pure logistical standpoint, you can't make Crown elsewhere. And you can't – it's much more cost-effective to ship hard alcohol than it is to ship beer for a variety of reasons. So even if you're right that the global market isn't big, if you have those those expat communities, those those parts of the global market where Crown Royal is really popular because there's a lot of Americans or whatever, or Canadians or whatever it may be, you can you're right. You can make sense where the the big market is one or two countries, especially two that are, you know, neighbors. And then you can still support it globally in a limited scale. But again, I think beer is just is not set up for that. I think beer's a lot harder to make global. Yeah. A yeah. lot harder. I mean, if you look at ABI even, like, and, you know, Bud, Bud Heavy is is a pretty global beer. Bud Light, I don't see that often in Europe. You see, if you see anything, it's like Budweiser is seen as the American right. beer yeah. from Budweiser, you know, from ABI, not Bud Light. Bud Light is one of the brands that's just huge in the U.S. Wow. Was huge. Was huge, yeah. 
<laughs> Still huge. Just yeah. less huge. Just less huge. I want to take a moment, though, because I feel like, especially Joanna, I want I want uh, to ask you this piece because I think it's connected, which is, do you think that in this conversation, this, this sort of discussion about how, um, you know, there just aren't, there isn't much space in for these, for beer brands to be global outside of these few behemoths. Do you think that beer drinkers in places like, say, the United States are losing something if a lot of these import beers disappear from uh, tap lines and, you know, uh, refrigerator uh, shelves and stuff like that? Or, or is it kind of like they serve to me, I, I'm kind of torn. I, a part of me feels like, man, they serve their purpose in a way, right? Like they were for people who wanted beer beyond the macro lagers. That was a, in the, your options for diversity in the eighties. And, you know, before were, were like the import section, right? If the, your, yeah. if the place you're at had it or the bar you're at had it. And do we, do we like, are, are we missing something? Are we losing something as these beers recede from, you know, our shores? I think if they all went away in a day, yes. But I think that if we slowly lose a few that weren't like, I don't know that I've ever had a harp logger. Ever? Uh, yeah. Never stole one out of your dad's fridge? We never had it. I know. A Heineken, sure. Really? Yeah. And so that's what I mean. Yeah. Like, I think there are a lot of big import brands that that live in the public consciousness. And I think that some of these, some of them just really don't. Yeah. I think that's completely true. Yeah. So like, I think if we, if we shed off a few of them or a few of them go away, like people won't notice or not at all. maybe the handful of people who are like, really, are we calling Is it? It's Smithics. Is that how you say Smithics. it proper? Smithics. Smithics. Well, Zach said Smithics. Smithics is how I Smithics. always say it. <laughs> so I could not tell you if I don't think I've ever had it. Then that's what I'm talking about. But I'm sure that there are like a, handful of people who like really love it and they're going to be super bummed when it goes away from their local grocery store. I mean, look, but there's a few of those brands. Like um, one of the brands that I remember was huge, huge, huge that I don't see at all anymore was Newcastle Brown Ale. Oh yeah. I loved me a Newcastle. Uh, me too. Like, but do you, when's the last time you've had it? When's the last time you've ever oh, seen God. it? A couple yeah, years ago. 20 years ago. Or Bass. <laughs> Bass. Yeah. Like again, these were all brew. These were all beers that were really big. These were these English breweries that were really yeah. big before the craft boom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people were like, yeah, "Well, this the, they were macro beers in their countries, but they were they were important to Americans because mm-hmm. they felt special and imported." Right. Well, and, and they weren't adjunct loggers. <laughs> right. And and but and, also that's really interesting because import beers, yeah, were they were the special beers before craft. Yeah. And then craft came and kind of just said, like, <laughs> we're, you know, we're not interested in these beers anymore. Yeah. I think if they went away, Zach, if they all went away, it would we'd lose a lot. I do. But see, this is where I wonder if I'm just it's just us being fogies here a little bit of like, oh, the beers that we stole out of our parents' fridges or bought in college or had in our early 20s, you know, depending on your uh, you know, personal relationship to legal drinking or not. Like a part of me is like, I bet if I sat down and had any of those beers today, I'd be like, eh, I can get a better brown ale down the street. Like yeah. I can get a better Pilsner or whatever. Like a lot of them, as Adam was saying, those are very large production beers that just felt special because they were from a different place and yeah. a flavor profile that was not common or easy to access here in the U.S. prior to the early 2000s and, and really the mid to late 2000s in a lot of places. And so I, I just this is where I kind of am like, you know. Were we just, is this all kind of like... It's sentimentality. Yeah, it's like your nostalgia for any of these brands, even the people who claim to love them, I would would also question how often they're really buying these beers if they, again, if they were buying them all the time, there would still be a market for them. But I just think that it's interesting to think about how craft beer 
really more than in a way killing off or taking taking big chunks out of macro loggers, which they took meaningful chunks out of. I think a lot of what they, they've done is, yeah, kill off the import market or at least greatly damage it here. Because in the end, like it was hard to make a, a compelling argument for an expensive beer from Europe that was in the end a mass produced beer just unfamiliar to us when yeah. you could have a locally produced beer with maybe a similar fra- flavor profile but that was fresher you felt like you were supporting local in- uh, enterprise more etc you know all those things that made craft beer compelling to people when it was compelling to people yeah, yeah. newcastle is now owned by heineken there you go but bass is basically no more yeah and that crazy i definitely had a bass once or twice yeah i used to see them at like concerts bass yeah, like in in high school, that was what I would see the like the kids drinking in the parking lot. How about like the Samuel Smith oatmeal stout? That was a big one. That for still me. exists though. It does still exist. I know. I had one like five years ago because I was nostalgic and curious. It was all right. Yeah, they're fine. Oh, this looks interesting. What? Which one? The Samuel Smith oatmeal stout. Oh yeah, the Samuel Smiths. Anyways, let us know any beers that you loved that don't exist anymore. Yeah, you can. we can reminisce with you. We're happy yeah. to. Podcast at VinePair.com. Hit us up. Let us know. And uh, I will talk to you both on Friday. Have a very nice week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the VinePair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the VinePair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vinepair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire VinePair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Visit theprisonerwinecompany.com to explore all their offerings this holiday season. And remember, ground shipping is included on all gift set purchases. Order by December 14th to receive in time for the holidays.